There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10th and Grinch, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant, 27-year veteran. We have a really interesting show for you tonight. Now, the Idaho 4 case, of course, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez, and uh, I'm missing the last, uh, Zaina Kernodal. I always like to mention their names because we won't ever want to forget about them. But there's been so much different news coverage for this. And recently, we came upon an interview uh, with Megan Kelly with a, a gentleman named uh, Howard Bloom, who is a two-time Pulitzer Prize-nominated uh, writer. He formerly wrote for the New York Times. And we, we watched the interview today and comparing it with a lot of journalistic coverage uh, on this case. And I was a bit uh, disturbed by Mr. Bloom's coverage and his elitist attitude toward this case. It was almost like he was speaking about this case with Brian Koberger being uh, sort of the, the hero in this case, and it bothered me. And as a police officer, as a retired police officer, as someone formerly in law enforcement and on the side of law enforcement, I was amazed that this two-time nominated Pulitzer Prize writing author is so ignorant about police procedure and many other things that he made ignorant statements about. He may be a good writer, but he injects a lot of his own opinions, which aren't welcome in a town that just lost four students to a horrific murder. And for some reason, when he takes the side of the murder, and, and, and maybe that's his writing technique, and acts as if this murderer is so smart and so wise and the police were flailing around trying to find him. Took them, it took them all of uh, uh, six weeks or less than that, actually. Uh, it took them about, yeah, about six weeks to, to capture him. That was too long for him. That was way too long. He, it should have been done in the first two days. When I hear this type of stuff, it makes my blood boil. With me tonight, let me calm down a little bit. I'm going to bring on uh, our guest. We have a, an amazing panel tonight. And first thing, I'm going to bring on a uh, retired attorney, actress, and the mother of five, Melanie Little. How are you doing tonight, Melanie? I'm great. How are you doing, Bill? Happy Monday. You know, Melanie, so great to have you on the show. And I know that I gave everyone homework during the day today. That's to watch this yeah. interview in its entirety. And you went above and beyond. You even read uh, one of his articles about this. And we're going to get, we're going to give everyone a chance uh, to put, put their two cents in on this case, but it really is very, very interesting. And of course we have with us tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective, detective Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? And hello, Melanie. Hi, Phil. Excellent. And you know something, and a real treat, for all of his fans that love the shine coming off his bald head, we we have <laughs> crime time, crime time with Duty Ron. He's coming on the show, and I love having him. 
hold on, Bill. I got to go get my hat to get the shot. <laughs> Good evening, Melanie, Phil, and Bill. Thank you so much for having me. What's up, Ryan? You know, we have to have humor on this show because it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't right. the same way if you don't have humor. So I have to bring it in there, you know? So, you know, we, we know that not everyone that has covered this case has covered it the same because this case is so, so very, very complicated. But yet this uh, gentleman, uh, Howard Bloom, he's writing a book. He's done a deep dive into this. But yes, yet he's made numerous assumptions that I found, and I think some of you guys found, very disturbing. Melanie, you want to uh, pick up on this a little bit? Disturbing, offensive, uh, derogatory, pompous. Uh, where, where, where can I begin? Um, I found this to be a very offensive interview. Um, and I usually like Megyn Kelly. I usually like her, her, her interviews. This to me was cringeworthy. Um, and all you need to do is read through the comments to realize that everybody else felt the same way I did. Um, this guy, his name is Howard Bloom, but it's spelled Blum, B-L-U-M, but he pronounces it Bloom. He wrote for Vanity Fair. He wrote for the New York Times. He's writing a book about this case. And the way he disparaged not only the town of Moscow, people who live in Moscow, the, the way he made uh, Koberger into some sort of sympathetic character. We'll get more into this, but it was just a, a really um, cringeworthy interview. Well, you know, we mentioned earlier on, one of the things they said in the interview was just how cool calm and collective Koberger was. Remember when he was pulled over by the Indiana State Police? Remember how cool he was? And I'm like, wait a minute. Did they not see this picture? He looks like a damn deer in headlights. Is that the, a picture of someone that's cool? Is that, is, is that, I, I just don't it know. It doesn't look cool to me. It doesn't look cool to me. I mean, it, look, look at this. Oh yeah, that's a cool, cool criminal. What are they seeing that we don't see here? Phil, what do you think? Well, right off the bat, when I watched this interview, I had the opportunity to meet Megyn Kelly several times uh, through a friend of mine that was working for Fox News. And I do like her. I thought she did some great interviews in the past. Uh, you know, but when this particular uh, writer, this journalist, Bloom, talks about how cell, tone, uh, cell phone tower information is very inexact, I disagree with that. Uh, you know, uh, if the phone is not on, we had gone through it so many times. When you're talking on the phone, you could almost exactly pinpoint the location where that phone is at the time. If the phone is just pinging, it's turned on, it gives a general area. He claimed it was about 12 to 13 miles difference. I don't think it's that much of a difference. But obviously, there's other components to the cell phone. They're talking about video and cell phone technology lining up. So again, uh, it's circumstantial evidence, but I think it's powerful evidence. He he talked about it. there's no blood trail, no blood spatter. He doesn't know that. No one knows that. The only people that know that are the people that have intimate knowledge of the case folder. So I think that that was a, 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 a statement that he made that was just complete conjecture. Uh, he did say something that I agreed with. There's no such thing as a slam dunk case. All we have to do is to look at the no Nicole Brown Simpson case, Ron Goldman case. Uh, everyone thought that was a slam dunk. And however, the jury voted not guilty on that case. So I think that that taught us that 
There is no such thing as a slam dunk case. There is a lot of evidence in this case, which I'm sure we're going to hear about at the trial, but there's many things that I did disagree with. His categorization of Kohlberger almost led me to believe that he was sympathetic towards him. Uh, he used the word death chamber several times in the interview that he'd be fa facing a death chamber. But right in the beginning of the interview, he did say that he believes that this is the person that's responsible for the homicide. So again, uh, a lot to be disagreed with. Uh, perhaps it's all about his book. Ron, you know, I wanted to ask you something. And uh, he made several uh, derogatory comments about the police, that the police were flailing around for six weeks. The police have a dubious case. The police uh, don't have the evidence. This, uh, specifically, the uh, DNA on the sheath Oh, and he touched DNA like he was an expert. He's not an expert on anything except being arrogant. Ron, your comments. You know, Bill, uh, again, the entire hour and 24 minutes was uh, cringeworthy, this interview with Megyn Kelly. Um, you know, I don't know much about uh, Howard Blum. I, I, I really never really followed him, never read any of his writings. But at the end of the day, he, in, in this entire interview, disparaged not only the police department, the investigators uh, from multiple agencies and multiple states from going back into Pennsylvania. But he also went after the church in Moscow, Idaho. He went after um, uh, Brian Kohlberger's father. He demeaned him by saying he was a janitor. This guy is, in my book, um, somebody who is just self-centered and was there to sell the idea for his book before this case is even put to trial. And the despicable part about it is not none of us have any of the intimate details as phil always says we don't have access to the case file right we don't have access to the case folder how is this guy getting into and in his early in in the early claims in this interview he was talking about knowing the mindset of brian kohlberger right this is just ridiculous utter insanity it just just gets me just going really crazy well you know they kept saying like he's so smart you know, lots of PhD students are not that smart. You know, they, they, there's like PhDs, you know, I don't want to disparage anyone that gets a PhD because it takes, if anything, it takes a lot of stick to it of this to get a PhD. But because you get a PhD doesn't mean you're a genius. You know, it really doesn't. And I'm, I'm sure Brian Koberger is not a genius. But you're right, Ron, disparaging his father because his father was a janitor. And all of that, what that entails. This is what he actually said. How many people in this life have parents that weren't, didn't achieve high things in their life, in their work life, or, but they raised a great family and their kids went on to do great things? Melanie. This is what he said. And I had to take notes because I know we're not going to show any clips of the video. He said, Brian Koberger's life is not only a horror story, but a tragedy. And then he goes on to explain why he thinks Brian Koberger's life is a tragedy. His father was a janitor. His father filed for bankruptcy two times. He, uh, he overcame a heroin addiction as a teen, and he was trying to better his life. He went to junior college, then he went to college, and then he went to grad school where he was pursuing his uh, degree in criminal justice, and he was a, a TA. He knows he will always be an outsider trying to get in. And that could be the motivation for him committing these murders. He sees himself as more sinned against than sinning. 
this guy with the BAU? I mean, like, where does he even, his yeah. life is a tragedy. It's not well, a tragedy, think... what happened, which is still fresh, not even five months ago. The tragedy is the life of Brian Koberger. Yeah. His dad was a yeah. janitor. And could you imagine going to Moscow, Idaho as a writer? And now after people seeing this interview, you think a single person is going to talk to him? The other thing was he spoke to some psychiatrist, a psychologist that counsels the police because a lot of the police have PTSD because they saw this horrific scene. And then he questioned whether you could smell blood. Dude, he should have walked with me through some of the crime scenes I've been with in my career in Manhattan North Homicide. You can smell blood, you arrogant. 100%. You know? And he's questioning that. Oh, they smelled blood. As he doesn't believe it. Ron, comment on that. Yeah, you know, everything about uh, what he said in this interview, um, and we could do the, we're going to do this for the next hour here. Uh, this was despicable on many different levels because, correct me if I'm wrong, um, my friends here on the panel, uh, we just had a janitor that gave his life up in Tennessee in that mass shooting in school, right? So uh, my mother worked in a factory when I was a kid. Uh, was was my life pitiful and poor and and sad and sorry? No, um, you know. So what this what this guy successfully did here is turn a lot of people off, uh, and a lot of people who are in where it counts, Ground Zero in Moscow, Idaho, are probably not welcoming this guy back with open arms. And to do his book and to do what he's trying to do here, he's going to need to go into that town and interview people. And I I would say this to the people in Moscow, Idaho, watch this interview. And think uh, about when before you speak to this guy, because we are going to get into in a little bit. Um, Maddie Mogan's grandmother saw this interview and left a comment in the comment section there. That's how pissed off, and that's how big of a reach. I mean, Megan Kelly's got almost a million subscribers on her YouTube channel, but she puts her videos out all over the place. So a ton of people saw this. It's not a good look. Not a good look. You know, Ron, I also question, and I questioned this with um, Melanie before, is that why did Megyn Kelly not ask him any difficult questions? Why did she not counterpunch some of the ridiculous things he said? And to me, they're ridiculous. And I just want to make a quick comment here. I don't like when journalists refer to the police as cops. I find it disrespectful. And us three cops here know that it actually isn't a disparaging term. It stands for constable on patrol, on patrol, and it comes from the British police. However, when journalists lose it, I almost don't give them permission to use it. They should refer to the police as the police or officer, not the cops. To me, it's, I don't know. Do you guys That's agree or disagree? Uh, I agree. I agree with you, Billy. And, you know, the, the whole tone of everything that he spoke about with regard to law enforcement was disparaging, in my opinion. And I just want to piggyback some of the things that Melanie just said. When he describes it, uh, his life as a horror story and a tragedy and sinning against rather than sinning, uh, again, he's drawing comparisons that a psychiatrist or a psychologist would be able to draw from a person that they've studied over many, many hours. Obviously, he didn't have that uh, you know, ability to do that. So he's just, I think, all uh, packing it all in for the sake of his book. 
uh, when he talks about that he had the strength to overcome the heroin addiction and that he was given the opportunities to get into grad school and, you know, to be a, uh, a teacher in the college and all, these were opportunities that he threw away. He had a great life ahead of him. Instead, he decided to become a homicidal maniac. And I think that, uh, again, uh, some of his childhood is probably responsible for his mental state. I mean, there's things that they pointed out there where he made uh, posts on social media where he said he had no self-worth and uh, that his life was, uh, you know, basically just very, very blah and dull, uh, that he uh, thought about suicide numerous times and other things. When he said he thought about suicide and other things, I believe he was talking about possibly homicide. So again, he, this was a very sick individual that did need help, shouldn't have been uh, free to walk the streets. Unfortunately uh, for those four kids, and they were just kids, uh, Zanner Canodal, uh, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonzalez, and uh, the last one I... Zaina Canodal. Zaina Canodal. Those kids were just innocent victims of this psychopathic maniac. You know, I want to take this quote right from the interview. You have everybody stumped. It's the perfect crime. Where does that come from? Does that come from the fact that it took six weeks to arrest this guy? And everyone in the policing service in the whole nation knows that homicides aren't solved in a day. I know he's, he's probably watching the first 48 every night and thinking that it's going to be solved in two days. It's not that simple. And he almost like said, oh, people are wondering, why wasn't it solved the day after it? Like, I find that, you know, when you're a serious person from law enforcement, when you've done this work, when you strap that gun either to your right or left hip and you've walked in front of danger and you have this arrogant writer who obviously has a political agenda because he disparaged a religion in that town. He disparaged the university. He disparaged the people in that town by saying, Melody, what was that quote about? Moscow rhymes with Costco or something like that, he said. He did. He said, if you go to, and this is from, directly from his, uh, his article, he said, uh, that's the real life mystery that had enshrouded the pretty northern Idaho college town of Moscow, pronounced not like the Russian capital, but to rhyme with Costco, the locals, with no attempt at irony, quickly reprimand newcomers. You think he said that by accident, duty run? With no attempt at irony. No, no, I do not. And, and you know, I, I question if Howard is cheering for Brian Kohlberger to be found not guilty for his own financial gain, uh, you know, because during the course of this whole interview, as I keep saying here, is he is breaking apart and te tearing down every step of this investigation as we know it, because we only know limited parts of this investigation. He tried to justify the goggles that were recovered in Pennsylvania, saying that, who. Well, maybe he was using them to, you know, do gardening and, you know, open, yeah, Same. right. Yeah, it, it, it was every single aspect of what went on from the from the search warrants in, in Pennsylvania to the search warrants in, in Pullman, Washington. You know, this guy is just, again, self-centered. It was all about him. He kept cutting off and talking over Megan uh, and she, which I was surprised that she never came back at him, like you said, Bill. Yeah. She never came back at him to question. And I've seen some, she's spite, you know, she's got spunk, Megan Kelly. So she put, she pushed back on uh, Donald Trump during a, uh, during a debate. So again, 
Hey guys, she could have easily pushed back on him during the course of this interview. And I, and I know that all of us watched it, but he at one point attacks Banfield and News Nation. Yep. And yes, he them, did. Yes, he, he did. That <laughs> was about the only thing that I might have a little bit agreed with him on because he attacked <laughs> Banfield. But uh, seriously, he was there was no holes barred here. And, and he really did make a fool of himself in this interview, in my opinion. You know, he also um, had this elitist attitude like I used to work for the New York Times. So we all know the New York Times never lies or never makes up anything. You know, in fact, they had a reporter named Barry Weiss who quit because she she didn't want to write along the lines of their political agenda. Yeah. And she quit and she wrote a re resignation letter. So this guy's acting like he's this elite, this New York elitist. I wonder if this case and, and God forbid, if it happened at Columbia University, would he attack that university that hires cop killers as professors? You think he would do that? I don't. Unbelievable. You, you know, Billy, uh, go ahead, Brian. Go. I wasn't, I wasn't saying anything. Go ahead. Billy, you know, the, one of the quotes that I found to be like almost uh, an excerpt from his book where he says, Brian just finds himself on the peripheral in a party school where everyone is bright, beautiful, young, gifted, with great futures denied to him. And he's living in a personal hell. And that leads to rage. I mean, how does he come up with something like that? That's going to be, a, uh, you know, a paragraph in his book. So I think that he was clearly uh, just, you know, hawking the book. He was coming up with his opinions or his version of things. And again, uh, we pointed out before we went on the air, he made some mention of things that we know aren't true in law enforcement when he made, when he referred to the, uh, the, the flashbangs that are uh, utilized when an entry is made into a, a home, when they're going to do a warrant, an arrest warrant. So again, uh, it's just really uh, not a very good interview. I'm surprised that Megyn Kelly didn't push back on several things. I want to read two quotes right from the interview. What made it so intriguing is it was a mystery. How could the police not find the killer right away? This added to the mystery. Cops said he smells blood. Maybe it's in his mind. That was his quote from the interview. And Megyn Kelly did not push back on that. Like anyone in policing, if he was on this show and he said that to me, I would love to take him to a few homicide scenes and see, he probably turned white. You know, this is the guy who also referred to the gun that they recovered at the scene as a Glock revolver. Exactly. It just shows his knowledge of guns, which if he makes that mistake with that, how many other mistakes is he making? As far as evidence, he has no clue. The guy, is, he, he was creating, oh, they're going to be able to create lots of doubt. How about the tractor trailer full of evidence that they're going to have in this case? How about that? Whether it's circumstantial, physical evidence, most of the evidence you don't even know about yet. But the police are the bad guys in this. You know, Bill, I want to like say he, he, again, we talk about staying in your own lane. He did not exhibit staying in his own lane at any point or time in this interview, uh, going on to speak about things that he just had no knowledge of. And it was clear and apparent that he didn't know what he was saying when he was being interviewed by Megan Kelly here, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I, uh, I looked at the comments. We all scrolled through them. We looked at them. Some of the comments were, "Megan, please take this video down." When you get comments like that, you know that 
your guest was a complete dud. And, and what he was alluding to here, it, it really gave the sense to the audience and people who are watching the replay that he was a cheerleader for Brian Kohlberger. And he really mm -hmm. was not on the side of justice. Look, we want justice for the victims and their families. And I think everybody who's following this case, no matter where you are in the world, you want justice for these poor for these poor college students, these poor victims. That's what this is about. And he showed a lack of empathy, a lack of, of, of care for justice in this interview. Absolutely. Carol. It's as if he's already trying to sell books then rather than care about, look, this, this whole case not only affected the families of these four students, but the entire town. This has turned this town upside down. Does he know this or does he even care about this? I question that. And I, you know, I, he also, I, we really discuss his lack of police knowledge. When he described the police flailing around yeah. and how could they not solve this in one day? That is arrogance and ignorance all wrapped up with a bow in a box. And it, it's incredible. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, you're in the right place. Uh, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel membership with count them five different levels, and our fans, our subscribers, and our friends are on our YouTube channel. Uh, Krista Fan, always, thank you so much for the $10 super sticker. Uh, I saw a few others there. Uh, Robbie, thank you for the 99 Super sticker. Um, folks, thank you so much. You know, if you don't think we have passion, <laughs> I know we sometimes I get a little excited about these cases that, you know, really sort of sort of annoy us. You know, I just when people talk about things and as Duty Ron said, he was out of his lane. He's out of his lane talking about some of these things. And it just, you know, makes your blood boil because we look early on in this case, we questioned how the Moscow police could investigate this case because they hadn't invested, investigated a homicide in seven years. So we questioned that too. But to their credit, they got all of the help they needed. They got the Idaho State Police and they got the FBI and, and they've done a fantastic job. And to hear this guy put them down and really not know anything about police procedure. Oh, yeah, he has a few friends that are in the FBI. Congratulations, you know. <laughs> Phil? You know, you know, Billy, uh, he talked about certain aspects that are going to be brought out at the trial. Like, for instance, the fact that Brian Kohlberger was in the area about a dozen times prior to the homicide. Uh, he described it as, you know, he's driving around. He's fighting his emotions to do something. He's able to fight it off. That's why he went there so many times, but then he gave in and he wasn't able to overcome the homicidal rage and he winds up doing the homicide. So again, it's like he's almost uh, giving uh, a defense attorney's uh, adaptation of what might be uh, put forth when they talk about the fact that he was in the area those dozen times. And there's several other things that he talked about with regard to the evidence. Uh, he kind of uh, really downplayed some of the evidence, specifically the cell phone evidence and the video evidence with linking the car. He mentions that, uh, you know, all the times that they had video evidence of the car, there's no specific video of uh, Brian being at the wheel of the car. So again, uh, a good prosecution team will bring in 
uh, let's say the Washington State University police and say, well, did Brian Koberg ever report that somehow or another he went to bed with a half a tank of gas and when he woke up the next morning he only had a quarter of a tank of gas and he believed someone was using his car? Obviously, the answer would be no. Did he ever report his car stolen? Did he ever report his keys missing? Anything like that? So again, that might be something that a defense team might put forward and it, there would be a good uh, prosecutor that will be able to answer out stuff like that and bring in uh, people that would be able to testify that that's just nonsense. Robbie, thanks for the $5 super chat. Gail Salaturi, thank you all in law enforcement. Well, thank you for appreciating those in law enforcement. Folks, this is a, an all-star panel tonight. We have attorney Melanie Little, Duty Ron from Crime Time with Duty Ron, who I thank for coming on the show. And of course, Detective Phil Grimaldi. You know, one of the things that uh, is so powerful, and Melanie, you can attest to this, is circumstantial evidence when it's piled this high. And, you know, it mm -hmm. piles up. It's very difficult to, you know, he, to, to argue when it's, there's that much circumstantial evidence. He even suggested that Brian Koberger testify. Now that that's that's moronic. It's <laughs> that actually will never happen. Moronic. I know. Yeah. The, the only thing that he said that I agreed with during that interview is that uh, Brian Koberger thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, and I agree with that. I think mm -hmm. that Brian Koberger does think he's the smartest guy in the room, which is what we saw also with Alec Murdoch, and Alec Murdoch did testify. I don't think there's any way in hell this kid gets on the stand. I just I just don't. I can't see I don't it. See it. Um, and we saw the same thing in Murdoch too. That's what convicted him circumstantial evidence. So yeah. we'll see what they have because the hearing is coming up in June, June the preliminary hearing where they're going to set yeah. forth what their evidence is. And we're going to see where we'll see it's soon enough. Um, but I can bet there's a lot of it. Yeah, another, so another, claim that, and another claim that Howard made was that he was going to plead not guilty uh, at, at this preliminary hearing. And that's, I, kind of agree with that. It's kind of a ground ball. What, what is he going to do? Plead guilty? Uh, he made a statement that also hi I highlighted this. He claims that the DA will have a very difficult time proving their case. Uh, and he picks apart, as Phil said, the cell data and all of the DNA and forensic evidence. You know, the FBI and the Idaho State Crime Lab were involved in this crime scene processing. And that was one of the things that Ed Wallace and I spoke about very strongly in the beginning of this is that the chief of police and the captain, I think his name is Captain Lanier, they made their first phone call upon making the uh, uh, discovery of these four college students brutally stabbed to death to the Idaho State Crime Lab. And that was the best phone call that they made because the Idaho State Crime Lab, uh, according to Ed Wallace, who is a crime scene expert, DNA and forensic expert, uh, they have a, a fantastic crime scene unit and the processing of this crime scene, uh, as we know from professionals from behind the scenes, was done the right way. Um, yes, there was some chaos. As we know, Phil, Bill, you guys can talk about this. Any crime scene that you have, it's going to be chaos. There's going to be people freaking out. There's going to be people that are just upset. Um, you know, when you have one victim, you have four here. Um, so, yes, it was a chaotic scene. But once that's, that, that residence was isolated and contained and the crime scene unit came in there, they, they collected as much evidence as, as possible. And as we know, Bill, you talk about it all the time. You go into a crime scene, you bring something in there. You go out of it, you take something out. And his car is going to play a big role 
And Howard also talked about his car. And I know you're going to get into that eventually. It's just amazing how much stuff this guy picked apart. And he's way out of his lane. Somebody in your chat said he's out at he's out at sea. (laughs) And that was that was a good (laughs) comment. Well, you know, he also run. This is a direct quote from the interview. The search warrant show that the police are in the dark as everyone else. No, it does not show that. What that shows is that the police are doing their job and trying to collect as much evidence as they can so they can connect the dots of this case and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this is the person that murdered these four students. So if you call that flailing around, you are misinformed. And I don't know how you became a crime writer when you don't know the first thing about police procedure. And if you'd like, I'll take my Nassau Community College education, Buffalo State and John Jay College master's degree, and I'll walk you through a few crimes. You know why? Because I worked for the NYPD as a homicide sergeant. And your arrogance is beyond belief. Can you know, I Billy, he, he, you... can I play a soundbite for a second? Go ahead. Pardon my French, but you're an asshole. <laughs> that so fits right now, Ronnie. That really fits. You know, he even attacked the uh, presence of touch DNA on the knife sheet. Now, again, he said some judges somewhere across the country may have thrown out uh, some touch DNA, but you know that's just one part of it. I mean, there's so much more, and I have a very strong feeling that there's going to be some other DNA left at the crime scene that belongs to Brian Kohlberger and perhaps some of the DNA from the victims or even a half follicle from the dog that's going to be either in Brian Kohlberger's apartment at WSU, his vehicle, or his home in Pennsylvania. So I I think we only have from that probable cause affidavit a little bit of the evidence that they put forward. There's going to be a ton more. And when you take all the pieces that Bill and I always talk about of circumstantial evidence and you pile them up high, it becomes something that is reasonable. It's reasonable to think that, okay, the touch DNA is on the knife sheet and and it's Brian Kohlberg's touch DNA. Touch DNA is not as good as blood DNA or some other body fluid DNA, but you're going to have all the other elements of uh, the uh, circumstantial evidence and perhaps other pieces of physical evidence. Melanie, you know what they also said? And this made my blood boil. They said, if they don't find out motive, this is going to be a real problem. Melanie addressed that. Oh my God, I heard that too. And I thought, wow, he really doesn't know what he's talking about. You don't have to prove motive. Okay, we can speculate about it. The guy could just be a psychopath, okay? That's why he, we don't need to say, well, he had a rough childhood and, you know, he was triggered by this, triggered by that, and that's what caused him to do that that night. No. And you know what else annoyed me too? Is they kept referring to him as a serial killer. We're all annoyed here. I know, I get really, you know how I get worked up. They kept referring to him as a serial killer. Yeah. Maybe he's a serial killer. I think he's probably killed before because if he killed, you know, four people in one night, it probably wasn't his first go. But at the time, they're not looking for a serial killer. They're looking for a mass murderer. That's a two totally different things. They kept referring to him as a serial killer. At one point, they called the police work dubious. It was dubious police work. It's worth noting that Chief Fry, the same day that they found the bodies, got the FBI involved that day. And within days, there were 40 FBI agents on that scene. He involved the FBI BAU. And for anyone out there who watches Criminal Minds, you know exactly what that is. It's the Behavioral Analysis Unit of the FBI, which is profilers. (laughs) That's what they do. They profile killers. 
So, you know, Melody, we, we spoke about that. I even got myself in a little bit of trouble on one of Duty Run's shows. He had a great guest, uh, Dr. Joni, what's her last name? Johnston. Johnston. And basically, I didn't mean to disparage her. She's a lovely person. She's a great, uh, very knowledgeable. I just said that the behavioral analysis isn't what caught this guy. It, it, what caught him was evidence. You know but what I, I mean? That's oh, yeah, but I'm not saying that that's what caught him. But I'm saying this was not dubious police work. I mean, no, of the course chief not. had these people called them in, got them involved immediately. It wasn't they like... The, they threw the kitchen sink at it, Melanie. Yeah, they, right they, away. Rightfully so. Rightfully it wasn't so. Like, they needed know, that help. Other cases we've seen where they don't call anybody in for a long time and they try and handle it, you know, like the right. Boulder Police Department. You know, I mean, you know. Right. I, 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 I was hoping that out of the hour and 24 minutes of this interview that I was going to be able to take something positive out of it. And I, I couldn't take anything positive out of this interview. Um, an hour and 24 minutes of him disparaging the investigators, the community, the victims, their families. Um, he went after the, the evidence. Church. He went after the evidence, the church. He even talked about the startup company in Texas. That was he used that Silicon Valley. The uh, yeah, oh, he used every left-handed, you know, left-handed hit. He also spoke out against the death penalty, but very sneakily, yeah. very sneaky the way he did it. You know, oh, are they going to give him four different poisons to kill him? Like, dude, why don't you just say you're against the death penalty? Why don't they use that as leverage against him? Get him to plead guilty. Although the community there. They want him to get the death penalty, but this guy could never understand that because he's such an elitist. Mm. He can't understand. Oh, you know, people wanted to know what church he disparaged. He disparaged the fundamentalist church. And uh, he it's claimed called the, uh, the stranglehold they had over the community. Christ church. He, mm -hmm. The Christ church. The fund so could you imagine saying that about any other religion in any other place that this guy's going to go into a little town in Moscow, Idaho, and disparage their community, disparage their university, disparage their students, call it a party school, say the ad sounded like an ad for a hotel. What is, is this guy trying to sell books? Or is he trying to, uh, I don't know what he's trying to do. He's out of his lane. But the crazy Melanie, part is that, that Melanie, um, well, what Melanie brought up too, is like the crazy part is, is that Megan was cheerleading him along as well. It's like she was laughing and cackling with him. Uh, right. You know, when he made that statement about the University of Idaho, he says it may, he made fun of the banner. He said it's the number one best value in the West, referencing a motel, a, a hotel or a motel ad. And, and then he went on to after that talk about um, the, the, the serving of alcohol and the differences between the fraternities. Right. Uh, and he was it, it just got he called so the town. He said it's darker than most college towns because of the fundamentalist church group members, openly misogynistic. Because I, I think he said because the fraternities are allowed to serve alcohol, but the sororities are not right. That's allowed right. to serve alcohol. And then he just said it's not as idyllic as one might think. He's not going to have any friends in Pennsylvania e either. Did you sure. hear the way he described the location where Brian comes from? I mean, he made it sound like a, a cave, a dim, dark, depressed area. Right. This is what he grew up in. I mean, Abandoned that's what you cars on front lawns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so so because you grew up in an area where there's a couple of uh, abandoned cars on your street, you go become a homicidal maniac. Come on, that's such nonsense. 
Lula Morocco, thank you so much for the $50 stupid super sticker. I loved your comment. We should invite Howard Bloom on the show. Yes. I, I, I don't think he would uh, come on the show. He would probably uh, not have the Kilionis, as they say in Upper Manhattan, to come on this show. The Glionis. Hey, Bill, the can Glionis. I say something quick? I don't like to disrupt the uh, continuity of your show. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I want to just say that um, this is a, a pleasure to do this because most of the times when I'm doing what you're doing, I can't really pay attention to the chat as 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 intently as I'm doing here tonight. And I want to say to everybody that's in the chat, you guys are putting in some great comments. And um, I, I just say to myself, look, we look at this interview that this guy put out just, what is it, on the March 20th, 2023. So that's when it premiered on her channel. We don't know when she conducted this interview because it wasn't a live video. She uploaded it as a premiere. Uh, and then she went and took um, she took shorts from this video. So she made uploaded YouTube shorts as well. So she didn't see anything wrong with this interview. She uploaded small clips of it afterwards, right? Melanie, did you see it was like four or five? There were some clips. Yeah, initially I saw like a five minute clip and then I watched the whole thing. It was like a minute, an hour 20. Yeah, this has been something that I, as a creator, would have been like, uh, I, I'm going to just leave it, but I'm not proud of this. Uh, so she doubled down on it and started creating extra content off of this guy's interview and it was just it was just terrible but the chatters in the live chat and all of you guys that leave comments and questions you're really what makes this a, a great community so i'm saying thank you to all the live chatters absolutely thank you so thank much you. and katina thank you so much for the 999 super sticker i want to also get a comment a little bit about what they referred to even in the interview and we know we don't know what the chronology was is when they had probable cause. There were several things that gave them probable cause. And probable cause for you folks that just hear that as a term, it stands for facts and circumstances that would allow a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person being arrested committed the crime. Word for word out of whatever textbook you want to look at about criminal justice. So when did they establish probable cause? And for sure, one of the things that helped establish probable cause was this white Hyundai Elantra, which he sort of also made a little bit fluff out of, oh, this gas station attendant was bored. Oh, she another person that you disparage because she works in a gas station? But how about the fact that they also had that white Hyundai Elantra pulling into the house, that same one. Connect the dots. That's what we do in law enforcement, Mr. Bloom. We connect the dots, all right? Did that give them probable cause? I don't know if that was enough. Did they have, what? at what point did they have the touch DNA from the knife, knife sheath, which you so belittle, because, oh, judges will regularly throw that out. Really, is that true? They regularly throw that out, because once they had the touch DNA, and it was matched to his father. Don't you think they took an exemplar from Brian Koberger and matched it up? And I'm sure they have more DNA because guarantee there is blood, there is evidence inside that car, which you also disparaged. Oh, what kind of evidence did they get out of that car? Oh, they ripped this out. They did. Oh, and they let him wash his car. You know, we don't know the mindset of the police at the time they made decisions, command decisions. 
when he was out front of the house in Pennsylvania, washing his car with gloves on, I had said on a previous show, I would have jumped him right there. Yeah. Taking Ziploc eggs of his garbage to the neighbor's house. Right. The, the, the probable cause is established right now. Whatever we have, we'll add it up. But you know something, Mr. Bloom, you don't know who made that command decision because you believe that the Indiana State Police just decided to pull him over and you believe the FBI didn't tell them to. So keep That's believing right. that. Billy, it's it could have it could have been the prosecutor's office. And you know when you uh, have a homicide investigation in New York anyway, that the district attorney's office is working very closely with you and they actually authorized the arrest. So they may have been saying, hold off, wait for the results of the DNA from the sheath or whatever it was. But at some point, I think you're 100% right, Billy, when he was throwing garbage out in a neighbor's garbage and he was cleaning the car in the middle of the night and all of those components coming together, it was clear he was trying to destroy evidence or at least distract the police from recovering some type of DNA. I think uh, a good decision should have been made at that point to take him. However, uh, there was someone else that was uh, making the decision and they waited on that. And uh, both Megan Kelly and Bloom seemed to be outraged that they watched him watch uh, wash his vehicle. So again, they were right about that, but uh, just a little disparaging in the tone of the whole interview. Ron, your thoughts? I can see your brain is is overheating. Yeah, no, no, no. I, you know, because I'm I'm thinking about when you covered this while that was all going down, and 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 you know, shortly thereafter. But you said, you know, as a supervisor, you're a sergeant, you know, retired sergeant, you said the emergency exception would come into play. And that absolutely could have come into play there. If somebody was on scene in command and said, hey, listen, we're going to, you know, we're going to take them down. Emergency exception could come into play here. Uh, but that that's not how it, how it went down. But I wanted to point out, too, is that um, Howard Bloom also didn't mention anything about the Pullman Washington search warrant. We had possible dog hair or some type of unknown hair and fibers. Uh, he just completely sidestepped that whole part of this investigation because they did not only the search warrant at the Pullman Washington uh, campus home, they also went to his office on a university. I don't That's know right. what they got from that office, right, Phil? But we know Absolutely. that they went there and I'm sure that they looked and they uh, tried to pull any type of DNA or anything off of his workstation and so forth. And we didn't hear anything about that uh, because it was on, uh, you know, the campus property. So I don't know if they even executed a search warrant inside of his office, but I, I think I remember them saying that they did. Yes. Uh, he did not talk at all about that in, the, in this interview. It was just all about him disparaging the evidence, the investigators, and everything, uh, everything surrounding it. So, how about his computers? What what information yeah. did they garner from his computers? What searches did he do? Was he uh, following social media of the uh, victims? There was so many different things that have to be looked at. And I think that those computers, whether it be a laptop from his home or, or a home computer, his work computer, there might be some tremendous information that they'll be able to get from those uh, from those devices. And again, his cell phone there might be some great information just right there on a cell phone. Now, we know that cell phones are very, very difficult to get if it's like an Apple phone to get a, a search warrant. However, I think uh, in a case like this, they'll be able to do that. It may take some time, but uh, that's maybe why, uh, you know, the 
the case being so far out into June is going to be on the side of the prosecution. Give them time to, uh, you know, examine all of these different things and to explore all the different, uh, you know, things that they're going to need subpoenas and, and get somebody to open that phone and unlock it and, and get the information from it. They also touched upon uh, DM and uh, we all know her name is Dylan Mortensen. It's, it's been outed. I'm not outing it here for the first time. But she was uh, one of the people on the first floor that saw what apparently was Brian Koberger walking out of the house, dressed all in black. She described the bushy eyebrows and supposedly had a mask like a COVID-type mask. Now, there also was a statement made. It's okay. I I'm going to help you. They, that apparently, we believe, was said by the perpetrator in this case. And I have discussed it numerous times. If he did have a mask up to here, why not do a lineup? And we don't know. Maybe they did do a lineup. Maybe they did. Uh, one of the things about doing a lineup, and I used to actually teach identification procedure at the NYPD criminal investigation course, you can have each filler, each person in the lineup is the perpetrator and usually five fillers. You can have that person approach the window and you see the gait of a person and how the person moves. And that may, you know, jive something in the person's brain to make the identification. So I'm not sure whether they did alignment or didn't we align it. We don't know, but that would have been an interesting thing. Could DM have picked him out. You know, of course, you require every person to wear a mask in the lineup to make it fair. Mm. But I, I'm intrigued by that, whether that, in fact, was done or they considered doing that. Melanie, your thoughts? I don't know whether it was done, and I don't know if it would be helpful, um, you know, unless you can get a bunch of guys all with bushy eyebrows, because that, you know, that's that was the defining feature that she mentioned. You know, there's been a lot of criticism about why didn't she, you know, why did she just close her door and go back to sleep? I mean, this was a house that was a party house. People were in and out of that house all the time. So, you know, I don't want to criticize what she did or didn't do. I don't know if they did a lineup. I don't think that they did. And I don't know how helpful that would have been, you know, with three quarters of uh, the face covered. What do you guys think? It, it, it could be possible that they could have done a lineup. I don't think that they did, and I don't think it would be fruitful. I think it would be too dangerous because if she uh, doesn't pick out Brian, then you have a, a situation where that's brought out in court. Oh, a witness who saw him face-to-face, -face, she was two feet away from him, and she couldn't pick him out. So I think that it would be quite dangerous. I don't think that that would be something that, uh, you know, unless they were real certain – that she was going to be able to pick them out. And I've done many, many lineups and Melanie, you're right. They'd have to have the mask and they'd have to find, you know, you have to find five other people that have very similar characteristics, right. physical characteristics. So again, uh, that would be something that they could have considered, but I, I really don't think it would be fruitful. I think it would be quite dangerous based on the fact that that kid was really traumatized. Uh, you know, it's the middle of the night, it's dark. She thought he was one of the party goers. And when that, first came out that she was in the house and didn't call the police for that many hours. That was a red flag for me. I'm like, something's up there. But then once little by little, the information trickled out and we kind of got an idea now that she felt, you know, you're making noise. Uh, you're keeping me up. I can't sleep. She yells out into the hallway. She goes to the door two or three times. And the third time she sees a figure that she thinks is part of 
you know, a, a party going on somewhere else in the, in the home. Uh, it's a, a Saturday night. So, you know, again, it kind of made sense to me at that point. And her explanation of why she went back into her room and just locked the door and went to sleep, it all makes sense to me now. You know, it sounds very logical. Now, again, we only know from what was leaked or what's been uh, talked about in the media. When we do get to the trial and those things are discussed in, in, uh, in depth, we may have a much better explanation as to why those things took place. But in the beginning, that uh, Bill and I, and I'm sure Duty Run as well, that was a big red flag. How could you have four people slaughtered, other people living in the house, and you didn't call the police for eight hours? It was quite suspicious. With the uh, explanation that we're finding out now, I think it really it does make sense. Ron, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I, I concur with you, Phil. Uh, this this we come to find out, uh, you know, through body cam footage of police being called to the residence, a, a party house. Um, this is not unusual for college life, right? So um, all of it could be explained. But until this trial commences, until the things start going, we're all going to sit here and, um, you know, give our thoughts. And that's all it's going to be is guesswork. Uh, and I try not to do that. Uh, and that's why a lot of the shows that Ed and I do are from an educational and forensic standpoint, because until this thing gets going, um, we're we're all just pulling at straws here because we don't know what they have. Uh, we hope and pray that they have a ton of circumstantial evidence and a ton of hard evidence. Uh, example, him communicating. Uh, we heard about him possibly communicating on Instagram or trying to communicate with these uh, one or, or more of these victims. Um, we hope that he did stuff like that. We hope that he, um, you know, made uh, attempts to come to the restaurant where they work. But, but none of it was, none of it's verified. Until it, until an official announces it at a trial that this is in fact what Brian Kohlberger did, we could talk about this all day long. And that's how I feel about it. Uh, and anybody that goes and attacks these witnesses or witness um, and, 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 attacks them online and so forth. You're, you're just as bad as, as a criminal in my eyes, leave them the hell alone. Let them be able to come and have the strength to come forward and tell their stories instead of attacking them. And I, I, and I can't overemphasize that. Um, you know, there's so much hate that's out there for people without knowing all the true facts. Just leave these, leave these girls alone and let them go and do what they have to do at trial and testify. Well, you know, Ron, we discussed, and it was, um, we've had experts, you've had experts, you've had Barbara Butcher, you have Ed Wallace, and the fact that someone killed four people with a knife, with a, a rather large knife, the chances that that person cut themselves and left blood in the crime scene, according to Barbara Butcher, was like 99% chance that he left blood. So if that, in fact, occurred, we don't know about it. But guess what? The police do. And we've we've heard a lot of like journalists, news stations reporting on leaks. We've also heard a lot of people talking heads on a lot of these shows that are pseudo experts that really probably never even ever worked a, ho a homicide in their life. But they're on these shows talking with great non-authority about what happened. And you you've had the true experts the Ed Wallace's first grade detective NYPD crime scene unit teaches crime scene techniques all over the world. Barbara Butcher, 
the retired chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. I almost can't say that in one breath. There's yeah. so much uh, credentials there. So those things are the people that we want to hear from. And to hear this guy talk totally out of his lane. Oh, the police are flailing around. Dude, you never worked a murder. You're writing about it. Mm. You, you've never been in danger. You never st strapped a nine millimeter Glock to your right or left hip. In fact, you called a Glock a, a, a revolver. A revolver. So, yeah, so there's your knowledge about that. So, you know, something, it just annoys me that we have these people that they also sneakily injected a politics into these cases. And that is even worse. Melanie. Uh, you know, something I wanted to bring up that I thought was so interesting. Did you guys hear uh, during his commentary how he hypothesized that the, the father-son trip across the country when his dad flew out there and it was such like a bonding moment and he, he made it almost like this heartwarming story that his 67 year old father who had, he had been estranged to was so kind and it was so he said it was so moving and it was so affecting that his father would fly all the way there to drive back across country with his son the arrangements for this trip were made around thanksgiving after these murders already happened and I don't think that it's that unusual. When, if I, when I went to college across the country and I lived in New York, I wouldn't drive back home alone if I need, if I need to bring my car home. And I think he had some sort of a, an appointment to get, he needed maybe his inspection done or his registration or something. He had to come home with the car. My parents would fly out and drive back with me. This wasn't some like buddy movie, like he's trying to make it out to be. It was, it was offensive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And that was the same janitor. That he yes. disparaged for being right. a janitor. He had to buy a and plane going, ticket, and he was a janitor. And going and uh, going bankrupt twice. This right. janitor, how dare him be a janitor? You know, so it's like, and like nobody in America has experienced a bankruptcy. I mean, I know I know several people within my family have, have claimed bankruptcy. It doesn't make them bad people. It just means that they've gone through a tough time. Uh, this guy was on his high holy uh, throne speaking like he was better than everybody else. And, and, and really, I thought it was a gross, offensive interview. Um, and it, what amplified it is it was surrounding four murdered college students. It, it, that's what really made it so amplified for me. And when you put me onto this, Bill, I had already scaled over this. I watched, I think, about a minute and 20 seconds, and then I clicked off. And Shut it off. But when you, you circled back to me today with this, I was like, shit, I remember hearing this uh, right around March 20th and when this thing got uploaded. Maybe somebody on Crime Time with Duty Ron sent me a message to go and look at it. But when I listened to it initially, I was like, this is garbage. And I didn't even finish listening to it because right from out of the gate, the first two minutes of this interview, the guy was, <laughs> it was just pompous. It was just ridiculous. And maybe this is a good time to bring up Maddie Mogan's grandma's yes, comments absolutely, absolutely. on this. Uh, I can yeah. pull it up here. All right. Uh, it's the top comment on this video. Can you see it? Did it come up? I think Bill has to share it on the screen. There you go. It's coming. All right. There we go. Okay. I'm going to go to my uh, version, which is a larger file. Melody, would you, yeah, would you read? Uh, yes, I'm going to read. Uh, she says, uh, I'm a grandmother of one of the victims, as well as a member of a sister church of the one that Mr. Bloom defames in this interview. 
I find this man totally unfit to be entrusted with this story. His demeanor is insulting and self-serving, lacking the gravitas that this horrific crime and the family's traumatic long-term pain deserves. He should know better than to indulge his prejudices, repeat hearsay, and muddy the events with his groundless, ignorant, and pointless speculations. My beautiful granddaughter's murder is not fodder to feed this opportunist's ego. You go, Grandma. You go. Boom, boom, and that boom is, is right. Logan's, Pamela Mogan and uh, God she's bless got 94 replies to that comment, 272 thumbs up. And yeah, God bless her and her family. And, and, and that was the first comment that I saw tonight yeah. when I looked at the comments and all of the thumbs up and all of the, uh, there was one person, of course, there's always going to be one jagaloon that comes in there that w gave her the business on it. But that person also got it too. Um, but, you know, this is the grandmother of one of the victims. It, I mean, if that is not, you know, loud and clear that this was an, a, a total disaster of an interview, total disaster of an interview, and she allowed it to happen. So shame on Megan Kelly. I, you know, again, like I said, she always seemed to be feisty and uh, was able to hold a good interview and give, uh, you know, come back and forth with the guests if she disagreed with them. But in this one, she just like laid down and just let this guy go roll right over. her. So it was, you know, Ron, what it reminded me of, and I said this earlier on, is the interviews that George Stephanopoulos did with... Uh, Snuffleupagus <laughs> did. <laughs> Here we go. Did with Alec Baldwin. They were total non. You know, there was nothing tough about them. It was right. just almost like a uh, an interview to have him sell his innocence. This mm -hmm. was an interview to have this guy sell his book. She didn't ask him a single tough question. Yeah. And Megan Kelly has a law degree, so she she she's no dope. She's a smart woman, but she threw him beach balls, not even softballs. The questions were ridiculous. She really let him run the interview. I mean, was it were, were there any questions? I mean, I don't, I don't even know if I heard any questions. It sounded exactly. like he just went off on a big, long monologue. He and was he, stepping he, he, all over he, her. Yeah, too. he was stepping over her. And listen, I hope that Megan Kelly, who I said earlier I happen to like, and I thought she's done some pretty good interviews in the past, I hope she reads that the grandmother of one of the victims was incensed by this interview, and perhaps maybe she could say something ab about it on her next show. And uh, I don't think this guy's going to sell many books, uh, Books, Billy. What do you think? Look, if he's this arrogant, in his, and I, I, I understand as a writer, he's trying to be flowery. He's trying to be uh, come up with an angle to write from and try to do it from the perspective of wondering who is this killer. But you know something? I don't think it works. Because I don't think this killer is a mastermind in murder. He's really not. But they're trying. That's the angle they're trying to sell it as. Oh, this guy, he didn't even get any blood on him. They don't know that. As right. you said earlier, they don't know if he got blood. They don't know if there was a blood trail leading out to the car. Right. He, he says no known. blood spatter, no blood trail. How does he know that? He doesn't know that. And he, he doesn't. doesn't talk much about the victims in that interview. And that really incensed me and bothered me. I mean, he, he kind of, you know, he, he referred to them as kids partying and this and that. How about talking about that? Four innocent kids are never going to be sitting with their families again. He, he, I, I don't know. The whole thing really just uh, it rubbed me the wrong way. I've been trying to hold my cool for this whole interview. I've been very reserved about it. But uh, it, th this interview really 
is very amateurish to me. I mean, when we talk about the stuff, the specifics of the case, we don't have access to the case folder I've said before, but we're all in a field of, uh, we're staying in our lane where, where I, I consider myself an expert criminal investigator. I don't know everything. I'll never say that. Uh, Ed Wallace, who's a first grade retired detective that's on duty ranch all the time, he knows crime scene and everything about it. I'm very good with interview and interrogation. I did many, many cases, many homicides. Bill, you were in the homicide squad of all places for many years in the NYPD, hundreds of cases. So when we make uh, a comment about it or we make uh, uh, give our opinion, I think it's coming from a pretty strong place. And Melanie, you obviously know the law and you've given uh, some great uh, input on specifics of, uh, you know, the, the law part of it and the prosecution part of it. So again, uh, he's a journalist. I get it. He's doing some research. He's trying to find that information. But you could see everything that he did it was all his opinion. This is all his opinion and his theories. And, and I'm going to call it conspiracy theories that he came up with. You know, Ron, I've run, I've run actually hundreds, you know, you know, people will say, oh, I caught 300 homicides. Most people that say that, uh, they're, they're lying. They haven't. Yeah. They're just estimating. But I, I probably literally ran over a thousand investigations. Not all homicides, shootings, you know, assaults, but a lot, you know, hundreds and hundreds of homicides. Yeah. And there is real methodology to running an investigation. It's not happenstance, and we weren't, we're not flailing around. No. You know, you use investigative techniques and you see what comes out of it. And if it's not, you're not getting results, you change direction. He does not understand that. He has no clue to that. Right. You know, when I worked in fugitive enforcement, I worked in fugitive for a decade. Um, you know, I had over 100 cases in my case folder every month, and I would get new ones every day in my box. So, um, Searching for, you know, fugitives that are on the run. This is not something that this guy, Howard Bloom, should be talking about, you know. Uh, yeah. And again, he talked extensively about it and disparaged all of the investigators uh, and all of the steps and every aspect of this investigation. And what what he failed to do is, as you just said, Phil, is, um, you know, respect the victims and their families and 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 show a little bit of empathy. And he he. He didn't show anything in this interview, and it was horrible, horrible, horrible. Ron, professionalism, professionalism, and sensitivity. I'm sorry, Bill. Professionalism and sensitivity is what that interview lacked. There mm -hmm. was no professionalism, in my opinion, and he was very insensitive towards the victims, the evidence, and on and on we go. He even questioned as to why the police used the flashbang to go into. Um, Brian Koberger's home in Pennsylvania. Dude, before you start talking about this, understand why police procedure, why they would use a flashbang. It's for their own protection and for the protection of the people or persons they're trying to arrest. It disorients the people inside and allows the police to get in there and get the cuffs on the guy before he's able to reach for a gun or a knife or attack them. So, dude, know what you're talking about before you start trying to write a bestseller, because you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Melanie. <laughs> I agree. I mean, the only the only motivation I can see for this interview is that perhaps he's trying to endear himself to Brian Koberger and tried to get a, an exclusive interview with the guy for his book. That's the only thing that I can possibly think of that would um, 
caused him to behave in such a way that he was so sympathetic towards him. It was just gross. Yeah, which was which in uh, itself gross. is sickening. Is actually sickening. You know, if he's doing it for you know, people will say, "Oh, well, we do this for clicks." He's doing it to sell books, mm -hmm. but we try to be factual in what we report. And in addition, he disparaged so many other journalists. You know, he's elite. He wrote for the New York Times. He's been twice Vanity nominated Fair. through. For a Vanity Fair, which is another leftist rag, you know. Easy, and easy, Bill. Easy. <laughs> Schmitty, thank you so much for the five dollar super sticker. Bloom stops the bus at Speculation Station. Police off the cuff doesn't. Thanks for your factual approach. Keep it going. Thank you, thank you Schmitty. Thank you, thank Schmitty. You so much. Really nailed it right there, Schmitty. Absolutely. And Phil, I want you to do a quick read of this here, if you. Uh, Joe Murray, attorney at law. Now, listen, if you have some type of a jam that you need some legal counsel, maybe you just need some advice. Joe Murray is your man. He has a tremendous amount of criminal background and trial experience. He's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. So he literally knows both sides of defense. You know, he can be in your corner. Joe's a boxer and he can deliver that knockout punch that might save you maybe some time in jail. So if you need to get a hold of Joe Murray, you could reach him at jmurray-law.com or you could get him on telephone by, at 646-838-1702 or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories and he is a terrific criminal defense attorney. You know, guys, I just want to thank everyone. Uh, Melanie, you, you always brighten up this show uh, with your opinions and your knowledge. And Duty Ron, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you're busy with your own show, and it's uh, great to have your knowledge and your opinions. And, you know, folks see you on my show, and they think this is legit, you know? so He gave uh, us the whole hour, Billy. Anytime, Cannon. Anytime, Cannon, in uh, Grimaldi. It's well, my you're the man. You're the man. I think it, it, was, it, was, it was a great show. Maybe I got a little... Sometimes I have a hard time pulling back my emotions on stuff like this, because... I, you know, it, it bothers me. He injected so much politics, mm -hmm. you know, very subtly, but he injected politics. He disparaged the people of Idaho. He disparaged the people of Pennsylvania. He disparaged Brian Koberg, his father. He disparaged the witnesses. I mean, and the church. Really, dude, dude, the church. I mean, you cool. can't get lower than that, you know? And I felt that Megyn Kelly really needed to counterpunch this guy, and she didn't. As I said, she reminded me of uh, Snuffleupagus uh, interviewing Alec Baldwin. You know, it was that bad. So, Phil, I'm going to start with you. Final thoughts. I'm going to give everyone a final thought. Final thoughts. Um, you know, I think that everybody's entitled to their opinion on, you know, cases like this. It's, uh, you know, if you're a journalist, uh, you can have an opinion. However, I don't think that there was uh, very good facts based on that uh, that whole interview. So uh, I want to say thank you to Duty Ron for coming on and cross-pollinating with us tonight. Melanie, you're always a pleasure to have on. And, uh, you know, uh, Billy also disparaged where the victims in this case, Zena Canodal, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, and Kaney Gonzalez. May their souls rest in peace and God bless their families. And hopefully they can find some justice in the coming months. Absolutely. Melanie, final thoughts. I, I just hate to see anybody profit off of anybody else's tragedy, and especially when it involves disparaging um, the town, the victims, the school, the place. It's just, it, 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 I found him to be um, 
you say he subtly said things. I found them to be very blatant. I think that he thought he was subtly doing those things, but I, I thought, and I'm sure you thought too, that it was very blatant. Um, but yeah, God rest their souls. Kaylee, Madison, Zena, and Ethan. Well, you know, Melanie, the line that he said, Moscow rhymes with Costco, or I don't know the exact quote he said, mm -hmm. but that was as bad as I remember um, struck from the FBI when he was grilled by the Senator Trey Gowdy. And he, he read uh, an email that he wrote and he said, I can even smell the Trump voters in uh, Walmart. That This is what that quote reminded me of. Moscow rhymes with Costco. Like he was disparaging this, this these people. Like he's this elitist New York Times writer. Dude, you, got, you better not step into Moscow again. Dude, Ron, final thoughts. <laughs> yeah, it's disgraceful. Um, you know, Bill, I want to just say thank you for having me on and and, and thanks to you, you know, Melanie and and and. Phil, um, listen, there's a time and place for everything. And, and, and I feel that this interview, there, it was not the time or the place. I have been approached on numerous cases that I've covered, Dylan Rounds being one of them, and also the boys from California City that Melanie, you were on the show mm -hmm. that we just did recently on them. I was approached by producers to give interviews for documentaries that they wanted to do before the case was resolved. And I simply turned them down and said, hey, listen, I'm not going to talk about this case until justice is served. Uh, and, you know, and it's in my opinion that all of these book writers and all these people that want to create docuseries, as some of, you, some of the people in the chat have said and Melanie said, you know, profiting off of somebody's loss, in my eyes, is despicable. But there is a time and place for it. You know, we look at Gabby Petito. Uh, as well. There was, you know, docuseries and, and things of that nature done after the facts, but there was people that wanted to do that before. So, you know, there's real people behind these tragedies. There's their families that are left behind. So again, as, as your great guests here and co-host said, you know, it's about the, it's about the victims here. And I send all of them strength and prayers and positive vibes. I say it at the end of every one of my videos and I mean it. So that's, uh, those are my final thoughts. Thank you, Bill. Well, Ron, thank you so much for coming on. And guys, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I want to thank all of the people that listened to us tonight. You could see, if you don't think we care, you could see the emotion we have when we report this stuff. Sometimes I get a little bit too emotional. Sometimes I get a little bit carried away. But guess what? I'm a cop, and I'll always be a cop, you know? And uh, I talk like a cop. When I see someone that's not a cop, disparaging cops, and with this elitist attitude, it really makes my blood boil. So I, think I think your I'm, Irish is up, Billy, for sure. That a, maybe that a little bit. Maybe that a little I bit. I think so. I think so. A <laughs> little bit. A little bit. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Have a great night, and God bless. Stay night, safe, everyone. everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.